So it begins. Potatoes, boil them, mash them, put them in a stew. My precious. Dwarves are natural sprinters. May this be the hour that we draw swords together. What about the legs? They don't need those. Looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. What business does an elf, a man, and a dwarf have in the Rittermark? This is Sting. You've met it before, haven't you, Gollum? Guys, is this the most memed movie of all time? Fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mulkel, here with my legendary co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Hollowell, your stalwart companion through the craggy mires of Mordor. Oh man, you really need a good companion for that. Yeah. Yeah, it's true, because you know what they say. I'll be your Sam. <laughs> That's great. And I'm Jack Olander, an Ent who has decided to fight Saruman by disguising himself as an Urukai. They'll never suspect me. <laughs> You're like the tallest Urukai I've ever seen. <laughs> yes. I just have dozens of Urukai corpses in my branches, and nobody calls me out. I was trying to think of, like, how to create an interesting, playable Ent character for, like, D&D or something. I was like, but, like, how could they differentiate themselves? Like, would they just, like, wear skin over their bark to, like, to blend into society? Oh, God. They would have to wear the skin of a troll. That's the only thing big enough to come close. Ooh, good point. I got an idea for my character now, guys. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I've got some exciting news for you because this week we have a patron voted movie choice. That's right. We asked our patrons what sequel or remake of a previous Swords and Satire movie they wanted us to cover. And they voted on The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Yeah. Nice. Such an indie movie winning. What yeah, great... I know. I love it when a little small, barely known film like makes it to the top of our list. Yeah. <laughs> but before we get too far into the movie, let's talk about some technical stuff. I'm sure most listeners probably don't need me to tell them that this movie is from 2002. It was directed by Peter Jackson, written by Jackson and... Fran Walsh, Philippa Boynes, and Stephen Sinclair. And it stars, I mean, just a whole bunch of people. Elijah Wood, Ian McKellen, Viggo Mortensen, Sean Astin, Billy Boyd, Dominic Monaghan, Orlando Bloom, Hugo Weaving, Miranda Otto, Liv Tyler, John Reese davies just a bunch of people. Christopher Lee! Christopher Lee. Oh, Andy Serkis, Carl Urban. The list goes on and on. David Wenham, who plays one of my favorite characters, but we'll be talking about that in a little bit, I'm sure. But 
with that out of the way, I think Chelsea's got a summary ready to go for this small, very easy to um, summarize film. Yeah, there's actually almost so much in it. It's easier to summarize. Nice. I was going to say, I mean, it's a brisk three hours. <laughs> and just for the record, we are going to be talking about the theatrical version, not the extended version. That's right. the one that we watched for this. Although for me, they kind of bleed together a bit. Yeah, so here's your summary for The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. So this continues... The story from the Fellowship of the Ring when... Where we follow an innocent ring just trying to make its way through Middle-earth. We follow the different members of the Fellowship after <laughs> they kind of broke up and went their separate ways. They like split off into little side bands and like indie projects and stuff. Right, exactly. It was a so pretty messy breakup. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was bloody. Yeah. It was yeah. literally bloody. A lot of strife, a lot of fighting. So Sam and Frodo are trying to find their way into Mordor. But one does not simply walk into Mordor. Oh that that was Oh, that's from the first movie. That was like the important message that stuck with me. Right. So they find Gollum. Well, they're accosted by him, and then Frodo forces Gollum to, <laughs> into to, indentured servitude. Yeah, and and to, with threat of violence and swearing upon the ring that he will not attack them, and he will actually guide them into Mordor. And I I don't want to like get too deep into the weeds here, but I just want to highlight one line that I thought of just now that was really kind of creepy, and I never really remembered before. But Frodo says, the ring is treacherous. It will ho hold you to your oath. And I was just like, oh, he is so aware at this point that it has a mind of its own. And it is, it's a very creepy line. And Gollum has had the ring longer than anyone, including uh, Sauron, I believe. So I guess he, like, confirms that that is true. Yes, he's, he acknowledges that that is the case. Holy shit, precious! <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, Merry and Pippin had been abducted that we saw in the end of the Fellowship, and Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli are still tracking behind these orcs, this band of orcs that took them hostage, the two little hobbits hostage. They're going to rescue them. This quest to save Merry and Pippin takes them into the land of Rohan. Land of the Horse Lords. Exactly. And they learn from a a band of horsemen led by Eomir. Horse fellows. Horse bros? Centaurs. No. There was no, 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 no. <laughs> no, wrong, no. Wrong movie. Yeah. That there was a band of... Two-part centaurs. That's, that's my name for people who ride horses, a two-part centaur. I see. <laughs> Sold separately. The pieces. <laughs> All right. I'm going to get back into it here. Hmm. Not if Jamie I have anything. Has, I know. <laughs> Not if I have anything to do with it. Pretty much. So they find out that band of writers had killed a company of orcs, and they said they left none alive. But once they get there, after Vigo breaks his toe, 
That's they, the actor, not the character. Aragorn, after Aragorn breaks his toe. No, no, I, <laughs> I don't think Aragorn broke his toe, which Viggo Mortensen definitely did when he kicked that helmet. Yep. He sees that their tracks actually lead into Fangorn Forest, and we get to see this happening in a flashback, basically, and Merry and Pippin got away from an orc that was chasing them into the woods with the help of a new friend named Treebeard, an Ent. One of my best friends, because <laughs> Ents rule. They don't like being called trees either. No, he takes great offense to being called a tree, which I'm like, I mean, sure, that's fair. But his name is Treebeard. They were trees, a little bit of lore, they were trees that were awakened by elves in the past. So they're trees with a college degree. <laughs> I guess it's like someone calling you an ape and you're like, hey, I'm not an ape. What's your name? Ape face. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> ah, and when Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli track Merry and Pippin into the woods, when we get back to those guys, we find out that they run into Saruman. Gandalf. Yeah, Gandalf, who's Acts like he's Sar Saruman for one second. He acts like him. He acts like him so much that his voice is Christopher Lee's voice when he first shows up for no fucking reason. Just to fake out the audience. And he fuck it, you, Peter Jackson. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, and then he reveals that he's actually Gandalf the White, who's been resurrected. Sorry, friends. I was just fucking with you for a minute. I'm actually Gandalf. After he stole that kill of the Balrog and yeeted him off of the top of the mountain. So many levels. Yeah. He got so many levels for soloing the Balrog. That he died and got resurrected as a, a the top tier wizard. The DM's like, you know what, man? Like, you really fought hard and like it was really bold of you to defend the whole party like that. I'll bring your character back. Gandalf takes Aragorn, Legolas, and Ghibli under his wing and tells them that their pa their quest lies on another path, that Merry and Pippin are fine with Treebeard. He needs these guys' help in Rohan. And so they, they accept that their friends are okay and that they, they should follow Gandalf. I mean, people tend to trust Gandalf. Mm -hmm. he, I, I, I believe he has earned people's trust for the most part. Yeah. He's been reliable when he shows up so they find out that saruman has slowly been taking over rohan and king theoden he's basically like possessing him and once they get there gandalf performs an exorcism for lack of a better word <laughs> a wizardism <laughs> and uh magicism magicism and has grima he whizzes on him yeah exactly <laughs> that's what i was trying to say and has Grima kicked out. And once Theoden comes to, Gandalf tells him how Saruman's orcs have been laying waste to his countryside in Rohan. And rather than fight back, Theoden wants to retreat to Helm's Deep, where he thinks it's this impenetrable fortress. 
And so he thinks it's the safest move he can make for his people. He doesn't want to visit any more death upon them. Boy, was he wrong. <laughs> <laughs> to make a long story short, they fight. Yeah. So Eowyn, Eomer's sister and niece to the king, longs to be a warrior. She's a shield maiden of the Rohan but she wants to take on a more active role rather than a supportive role. And she just is feels like she's confined, but she still does that supportive role really well. She is Theoden's right hand person as their whole community has to become refugees basically and get over to Helm's Deep. And she helps organize everyone and lead the way. Yeah, I mean, she she is kind of the moral support of the Rohirrim. She, like, helps evacuate everybody. She people look to her. Yeah, exactly. Like she is she is well regarded in the culture, and and people trust her. And there are so many scenes of people thanking her and and looking to her for guidance. And when she calls out orders to everyone to keep them safe. You can see everybody listening to her. And, and there's a great moment where she's kind of feeling a little prickly because of what's going on. Understandably, by the way. Yeah. Um, like after her uncle basically says that she can't fight and she's training with a sword. And Aragorn shows up and it's like, dude, you're badass. Like you can do whatever you want to do. But like the role of protecting your people is important any way you slice it. He basically shows her in that moment that he doesn't see her as just somebody who has to grow old and die behind the castle walls. <laughs> yeah. He respects her. <laughs> He's like, yo, you could kill a witch king if you wanted. I mean, <laughs> not, not in so many words. We're not there yet. No, sure. But uh, spoilers for the return of the king, I Thanks, guess. Thanks, or Aragorn. I really appreciate that. It's kind <laughs> of a weird spoilers. compliment, though. <laughs> spoilers for a movie that's almost 20 years old. Yeah. <laughs> So they make it to Helm's Deep. There was a battle with the goblins on Wargback, and they think Aragorn dies. And there's another fake out there. He fell. <laughs> he fell. He fell in battle, and it's a sad moment. I felt I was choking up. It was sad. Oh I no, mean, I, I I'm joking, but I think that's actually a great delivery uh, by John Reese Davies as Gimli. Yeah, and the woman that plays Eowyn. I love Miranda her. Otto. Yeah, she's great. Um, she plays it really well, too, just shocked and, and grieving as she hears these words, because she kind of has a little bit of a thing for Aragorn. I mean, who doesn't? Yeah. I I, I just, I want to say real quick, I don't want to, I don't want to. I'm trying to wrap it up. Yeah, I don't want to, like, distract from the summary or anything, but I really like the moment where, Gimli is shown to be very sad about the death of his companion. We don't often see that from what are supposed to be big, gruff, tough characters like Gimli, the fucking fighter, but he's like crying. And yeah. I, I find that very touching. It's true. And that's good foreshadowing for our discussion to come. But let's finish this up here. So there is this epic battle the most epic battle ever filmed? Like over 10,000 orcs that come through as an army to just wipe out this branch of humans. And uh, I just wanted to backtrack real quick and say that Gandalf is not with them at this point. He left to go try to go find Aelmir, who Classic rode away Gandalf. with like 
three a company of three hundred men or something crazy like that. Now, where have I heard that number before? Oh, I don't. I'm not sure. And so he's hoping to come back in time. He's going to be back in five days, and so they have to try to hold out. I mean, and as we know, a wizard is never late. That little did they know that Saruman had gunpowder, and nobody in the world had really seen that before then and so <laughs> especially not Grima who's like moving a candle really close to it so King Theoden up with all the information he had he was making the best call that he could and he had every reason to believe that they could have held out for probably months behind those walls because that had happened in the past yeah I mean that's why Helm's Hold got its name Helm's it was, Deep oh, sorry D&D. That's where Helm's Deep got its name, is from, like, being this impenetrable fortress for this legendary Hewn hero. from the very stone of the mountain. And if he had known about the gunpowder, he could have taken precautions against it, but that is how the orcs break through. They keep having to retreat. The, the humans um, that have elves that come in during the night to help them out just before the battle... The humans and elves have to keep retreating farther and farther back. They're suffering innumerable losses. They're finally at the keep, and they are going to take a final ride out to their death, but to take as many orcs with them, basically. Aragorn convinces Theoden to make a final ride against their foes. And he knows that dawn is coming, and he trusts that Gandalf will be there when he says he would. And they ride out, and as the dawn is coming, the sun is rising, Gandalf shows up at the top of the mountain with this company of warriors to flank the orc army. And they ride the sunset down the hill, or sunrise down the hill. <laughs> you know, like you do. <laughs> Blinding the orcs. And just cutting them all down and forcing the rest to retreat. And they save the last remnants of the Rohirrim. <laughs> fucked up, yo. It seems like most of the elves died. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of the community that was hiding in the cave survived too. And that's an important part. And then there's all of the Rohirrim that had been riding with Aomir. Most of them survived too. So... A big portion of their culture has survived this battle. And meanwhile, we also get to see the Ents rip Isengard apart, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah, that part's it's pretty brutal. It's so satisfying. Yeah, big clumsy Ents just going and attacking. Subtle Ents like me. We know the value of subterfuge. <laughs> and... Saruman retreats into his tower and we see that Sam and Frodo are going to are taking this path that Gollum is leading them on because it was too dangerous to go into the Black Gate. And I left out the bit about Faramir, but we can talk about him in our discussion. Yeah, I, think I was going to say, enough, how dare you skip Faramir? This is enough for us to go on with the summary. I think that's good for now. I know, that was a nice, concise, and tight summary. So, Especially thanks to me and my assistance. <laughs> but on that note, why don't we head into the delve?
This is The Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of The Lord of the Rings, colon, The Two Towers. So, Jack, you picked up on this as well while we were watching it, and this is how I want to frame our discussion. This is a movie about hope. Oh, I was hoping you wouldn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) I guess we'll have to end the episode. (laughs) It's hoping for something better. It's having hope in the face of darkness and despair. And despite how everything is deteriorating around you and trusting your friends and your community and having those be sources of hope and a way for you to carry on. And I just felt like This is the movie I need to see during this pandemic at the start of 2021 after just having been through... After the most hopeful year of your life. Going through eight months of quarantine and needing to understand, like, how do I keep hope alive? And then we watch this movie and it gives me all the answers. (laughs) It does? Are we going to siege Isengard? (laughs) Guys, I've been waiting for this for years. But I just really feel like this is the best movie for 2021, and it's what I needed right now. Nice. Yeah. Well, let's talk about where the themes of hope spring up throughout, since in this movie, hope does kind of spring eternal. There are several characters that act as symbols for hope, in particular, besides the general idea that one's community and friends can give you hope. Oh yeah, like that Gollum fellow. He hopes to get the ring. Yeah, yeah. He hopes. He can hope all he wants. But there are a few characters that symbolize this idea of hope. One in particular is kind of like the Shining Beacon, and that's Gandalf. Oh, I thought you were going to say Sam. He's the one who can help remind you what gives you hope he basically gives us the lines of like what why you should keep going what what can keep your hope alive some of his lines are the ones that i was like taking to heart like yes please keep talking to me sam tell me why i need to keep hoping (laughs) how do you do it sam how do you always keep going well some nights mr frodo the world is just too much I just scream, and I scream and scream until my vocal cords give out, and then there's a peaceful silence, and I can't scream even if I want to. It's those moments of pure peacefulness that I live for, Frodo. Holy shit. (laughs) Also, I like friendship. Oh, sweet, Sam. (laughs) (laughs) He also likes potatoes. Yes, but yeah, in does. one scene when Faramir, after he caught them and found out they had the ring, he took them up to Asgiliath before he lets them go. And right after Sam saves Frodo from the ring wraith, and after Frodo realizes that he was about to attack Sam and is backing off, and Frodo says, I can't do this, Sam. I love how we always go into Sam and Frodo voice. (laughs) So, Um, Sam. (laughs) How do we keep going? And and Sam points out that there are all these people that have stories 
from his their history that have become legend and how did they keep going even when things seemed the darkest and he points out that they all had something to hold on to that helped keep them going and frodo asks what that was and he says that there's good in this world worth fighting for mr frodo mr frodo <laughs> 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 and that was one thing that I thought could help you keep going. Like, there's this idea that there's good in the world that's worth fighting for. I like that line. And I felt like that was something I could take to heart for my life. <laughs> <laughs> what do I, why do I keep going? Leave it to Chelsea to take life advice from a hobbit. <laughs> oh, the hobbits are the best. Yes. <laughs> I like to take life advice from the Ents, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. The Urukai give the real life advice. Oh, God. Life is a hunk of meat. Just go out there and take a bite. <laughs> so, we can we can get into the meat of Gandalf in a moment, but... The meat. So, some of the other characters are, are beacons of hope, like uh, Aragorn and his uh, company, Legolas and Gimli. They are often portrayed as symbols of hope, or they help inspire hope in others through their... I mean, when they show up, like, it seems like Rohan is ready to basically collapse under the weight of, like, Grima and Saruman's influence and this kind of waning... The orc raids. And... Yeah, these orc raids. This is kind of waning glory of Rohan that is just seen better days and everyone's kind of consigned themselves to giving up and then Gandalf and then Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli show up and are like, no, wait, we can actually fucking well, start I wanna frame kicking this. the ass off of Saruman. Yeah, but I want to frame this a little bit because Eowyn walks outside after watching her cousin die and kind of, he was her hope that things could change and he's dead and she's about to give in to despair. Well, also her brother gets exiled. Yeah. And Grima is putting words of poison in her ear and she goes outside. Oh, and Grima's sexually harassing her. Yeah. So another fucking like, reason she feels that like she's alone. Feel so she goes outside and the banner of her home gets torn off in the wind and is falling to the ground as a final symbol that, Perhaps they're going to fall into ruin. Well, that's but a convenient metaphor for how I feel. But it brings her attention out to the fields beyond the walls of their city. And that's when she sees these writers, this symbol of strength and courage and camaraderie that are the horses for their people. And they're, they're riding up to them as allies Allies are another major symbol of hope in this movie. Three whole fighters to help us. But they're hero-level fighters. I guess four, yeah, because Gandalf's with them. And right when they start to ride up, you get the Rohan music, too. And it, it gives you that feeling, like, rising in your chest. Like, you dare to hope in the face of all this darkness when you see allies coming to your aid. And that's, that scene is a great example of how allies as a source of hope is an important message in this film. Also, friends as a major source of hope. Almost all of the characters 
insinuate that in their dialogue or outright say it. I mean, it's a major theme that carried through from the previous movie, which is, you know, the fellowship of the ring, like the the camaraderie, the comrades of the ring, as I like to call them. So we can give hope to each other through our community, our allies and our friends. And I, I was like, you're right, you guys. This is what can help us carry through is each other. We have each other. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was like, this is what I needed to hear right now. <laughs> this is the right movie. I know. I think you just so strongly hit the nail on the head. And that's kind of, yeah, like you mentioned, all the characters that are involved in the Fellowship are beacons of hope in their own individual circles right yeah frodo has hope that Gollum can get better because he needs to hope that he himself can get better and break free from the ring's influence sam is there to give him hope. there's hope in redemption yeah yeah exactly aragorn legolas and gimli they all give hope to theoden horsemaster when the battle is gone, there's the other beacons of hope, like you mentioned, Gandalf, and then um, Pippin, and who's the other one? Mary. Pippin and Mary are trying to rally the Ents to storm Isengard as well. And there was that line that you were mentioning earlier when they're like, you're part of this world, aren't you? It needs your help. Yes. Right. The Ents, I have in my notes that uh, the Ents move at the speed of IRL politics. <laughs> because, like, they have this big meeting where they're like, oh. Entmoot. The Entmoot. Yeah, the Entmoot, yeah. Where they're like, oh, should we help? Nah, it's not our fight. We don't care. Fuck the humans. Fuck the elves and dwarves. Don't matter to us. Also, Treebeard thinks that Merry and Pippin are orcs, which <laughs> I guess that's. It's a, a a bad uh, misunderstanding there. But, uh, you know, it's not until Treebeard sees the destruction and what's going on close to Isengard, where they've cut down these forests, these trees that were his friends since they were acorns and seeds. And then he's like, oh, well, now I'm going to, like, call to action. And the ants are literally right there at the edge of the forest, ready to go kick the ass off of Saruman. They go from zero to 60 real, real fast. Yeah, definitely. But hope in this series, it, I think you're right. It's bred from community. Yes. And it inspires fighting spirit, which is very cool. And all of these characters are juxtaposed with the characters that are giving in to despair. Like like Elrond, He's seems so wise and knowing but he's actually giving in to despair by going to the undying lands and going into the west he's just over it man <sighs> like he's just so over it he keeps saying that there's nothing left in this world worth fighting for and it's going to fall to darkness and ruin that's him giving in to despair and his daughter arwen argues with him saying there's still hope there, there's still something we can fight for in this world. And she sees this potential for light to win. And Elrond, he's been there, done that in the past. And he just thinks that it's going to keep repeating itself. And he's wrong. He's wrong, but I think he has a good reason 
to be cynical because he was literally there when Isildur refused to throw the ring into the crack of doom. And and he saw how the greed and avarice and like want for power will just lead the world to ruin. He has seen how when one person wants to consolidate power all for themselves, it causes suffering for everybody. So I don't necessarily blame Elrond for not having hope because he's lived through a really shitty set of experiences and he's seen the worst that humans in particular have to offer and probably expects that elves could easily fall for the same trap as well. He's leading all of his people and all the other elves are going to the undying lands because they've all given up hope. But our heroes prove them all wrong. But um, Sure, I mean they wouldn't be our heroes if they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I you yeah, know I get does, Elrond. I get does... where he's coming from and I get why he wants to he has a paternal instinct towards his daughter. He doesn't want he he thinks that Arwen would be throwing away her life. And you know, I mean parents often have misguided desires for their children or or have expectations that you know their children aren't going to necessarily want to live up to. You you uh framed this in a really funny way, Jack, when we were watching it. Oh yeah, the elves, they're doomers. <laughs> Pretty Doomer much. elves, Doomer elves, they're all just like, oh, things are going bad. They're going to probably go, the world is just over. They Fuck see, <laughs> yeah, they only see, they focus on the negative qualities of humans and they choose to ignore the positive qualities. And this colors their entire perception about the future of their world. But not going to lie, like, if you're going to bet, like, for either humans being good or bad, eh, bad is usually a safer bet, right? No. <laughs> Don't give in to despair, Jamie. But I'm a Doomer Elf. <laughs> I got big Doomer Elf energy. I'm a, I'm a hoper. A hopeful, a, a hopeful hobbit? Yeah, a hopeful hobbit. <laughs> I'll, be a, I'll be a human. I'll take it. <laughs> I think they're all right. I'll take it. <laughs> Aragorn's a human. Kinda. Yeah. Kinda. Yeah, he's I like a the way he yeets. I like the way he yeets Gimli. I couldn't do that. But Well, he's kind of like a superhero because he's part of the Numenorian race that were basically a superhero race of humans from the past and their line has died out. Which is a problematic trope that exists throughout Tolkien's work. Yes, it is. Admittedly, this idea I'm of... I'm just describing what they were, but they... Sure. They, yes, it But is. there's this theme of the mighty old race of humans who are just better than everyone else that has really troubling implications. I know. It's, You're it's, right. It's um, paleo poetry is what that's called. You're right. I'll be it, one of those. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this idea that, oh, the past was a, a era of glory or a golden age there's some golden age that has since passed but honestly if you look back at history the past is just riddled normally with all of these different ways that people's rights were constantly taken away from them and it, it's not good to go back so you're <laughs> saying that the past is just the present without running water and more poop everywhere it depends on where you were and when you were. But yeah. 
You know, if you really want a golden age, look to the future. Things just get better. That's very hopeful of you. Yes. There's something worth fighting for. Yes. Mr. Frodo. (laughs) So, yes, in this movie, the forces of darkness are building, and it seems like everything that is good in the world is dying off, but that's why it's even more important to fight for it. And Aragorn inspires that in Theoden when they decide to ride out, and he knows that their allies are coming to save them, and that it's worth asking for help. Theoden is too proud to ask for that help. Yeah, he's like, Gondor, where were they when I fucking needed them? It's like, well, I mean, they had their own problems too, so... And who is saying that to him? But the rightful heir to Gondor, too. Yeah, well... He hasn't been there for many years. Aragorn's not, like, throwing that in everybody's face. But he and and, uh, Gandalf conspire to go ask for help anyway. (laughs) Definitely. It's like the iconic Gandalf the Grey quote. When shit's getting bad, people start giving a fuck. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I remember that. That was the one one F-bomb they used in the Fellowship. Yes. After he smokes, like, ten bowls of his wizard hash. (laughs) I think they call it pipe weed. Isn't that Radagast's job, though? Radagast the stoned. (laughs) Yeah. Gandalf the baked. Gandalf, are you okay? I can barely move. But let me tell you, Frodo. (laughs) When shit gets bad, people start giving a fuck. (laughs) And then he dies and comes back as Gandalf the White. That's awesome. This movie, to me, was a metaphor for working through despair and overcoming it if you can, part of which is done with hope. I think think you're right. I also think there is, I mean, besides hope, though, I think there is also an air of kind of grim determination of just doing what you think fi- is right doing what you think is right regardless of if it's going to result in you not making it out you might as well stick to what you are all about like that is in the movie and it is exemplified in the scene that we've referenced already where Aragorn and Theoden ride out sure yeah they they think they're going to die yeah. and it doesn't matter it's not fatalist they think it's worth actually making a last stand that it means something well i think that is fatalist personally like that would be my my interpretation that that is like that fatalism is it's not nihilist i guess i should say no it's not nihilist at all it's it's quite the opposite it's it's very idealistic it is Mm -hmm. our deaths might result in some good coming from them yes and we are willing to pay that cost and you know it is hard not to relate that to Tolkien's experiences in war and the world at war around him. We talked about it in our previous episode, how Tolkien was averse to this idea of allegory, but it's hard not to read a lot of war allegory at the time that Tolkien was writing, given his experience as a soldier in World War I, seeing the evils that humans can be capable of, and, and believing that it is the right thing to do to stand up and fight, even if you are not going to survive. Yes. I I also think it's funny how 
and I think we might have mentioned this in the last episode, but how a lot of people see it as kind of like a World War II reference, the whole film. And uh, if the forces of Morador are the Nazis, then Saruman is certainly one of the generals, right? And who plays Saruman but Christopher Lee, the ex-Nazi hunter? If there's not irony there, I don't know where it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he just knew how to portray, uh, you know, a character of that um, that ilk because he had known them and killed them. <laughs> <laughs> known them very intimately. <laughs> I mean, we did talk about how he knew the sound that a person makes when being stabbed to death. <laughs> You knew them so well, he was there when each of them died. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. A lot of this movie is a metaphor for dealing with depression, too, in my opinion. Really? You can see or wrestling with your demons, so to speak. Right. Yeah. I kind of got that partly through just the despair that characters were battling against. And this idea of this force of darkness from within, because Mordor is kind of at the center of all things. And Sauron is this ever-present being. Like self-doubt. Exactly. <laughs> self In some of us. Self-doubt, self-criticism, and could be kind of like a dark passenger or a source of dark thoughts from within. And the forces of light and hope are striving to take away the power source from that being. So it could be like finding a way to battle your own demons. And Gollum literally wrestles with his Himself. own inner demons. And through sheer force of will, and after Frodo has shown some trust in him, and given him some small modicum, a small modicum of respect and saying that they will follow his lead, he gives him the courage to expel this demon from inside of him. Unfortunately, that doesn't last very long. Yeah, after he thinks he's betrayed by Frodo, it comes back. I don't know if he thinks he's betrayed. I think he is betrayed by Frodo to some extent. I mean, Frodo's trying to save him to some extent, but I mean, the uh, Faramir's soldiers do not treat Gollum well at all. No, they abuse him. Faramir, he's, uh, you know, for everything he is, he's a bit of a dick. <laughs> yes. The, How dare you? How <laughs> dare you? The theatrical version of the character is very different from the version of the character from the novels. Well, uh, maybe he just doesn't like short people. Oh, that's that seems worse somehow. Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather he's just kind of a dick. I do want to talk about Faramir, though, because he is absolutely one of my favorite characters, and I don't want to finish this discussion without kind of going into his character, his motivation, the way he's portrayed in the film, because he becomes a significant character from this point on. Sure. In the series. You know, I was thinking about it. I usually take the stance that I do not like the changes they made to his character from the book. But as I was thinking about it in preparation for our discussion, I was realizing 
that they actually created a more interesting arc for him. Well, why don't you uh, just briefly let listeners know what those key differences are? So in the book, Faramir is more of a noble character who is, he's the captain of the guard. They are guarding Gondor's borders and they primarily are guarding an entrance into Gondor through these lush gardens. Uh, and that's like their home base for the these rangers that he leads. And he is more, like I said, a noble figure. He's well regarded by those who follow him. And he's not a tragic figure as much as he is in the movies. Yeah, that change I actually like quite a bit or or the emphasis on that aspect because especially in the movies we see Faramir as this kind of disregarded second child to his brother Boromir. Boromir is the hero of Gondor. He's the one their father, the steward of Gondor idealizes Boromir. Boromir can do no wrong. Faramir can do no right. So much so that, you know, we don't learn this until the next movie, but I'm just going to share it now because I think it's significant to the character. His father tells Faramir that he wished he'd been the one who died instead of Boromir. Mm -hmm. To his fucking face. Faramir is literally living in the shadow of his heroic brother, but Boromir doesn't treat Faramir like a lesser. He adores his brother. We see these... Again, I'm jumping to the next movie, but I think it's really relevant. We see these moments, these flashbacks in The Return of the King of Boromir and Faramir having a a great affinity for each other. They have great affection. They're very close. Yeah. But, you know, in this movie, we kind of see this rough edge of Faramir. We don't know at this point why he's got a chip on his shoulder and why he feels like he's got something to prove, but it really comes through in the performance of Faramir here, where he is willing to do anything, and he sees the ring as an opportunity, just like Boromir did in The Fellowship of the Ring, as a weapon that Gondor could use. And he says, this could be a weapon. We're going to send this weapon to my father, and it is going to win the war for Gondor. That is exactly what Boromir said in The Fellowship of the Ring. Yes, but Faramir's relationship to this idea is much more selfish than Boromir's was. Boromir actually wanted the good for his people. Faramir knows it can help his people, but he wants to bring this tool back to his father to try to win his father's affection and be raised up in his eyes. So it's much more, it's coming from a much more selfish place. But I think that makes Faramir much more relatable. Yeah. Because he is doing it for selfish, he's trying to do what he thinks is the right thing for the wrong reasons. Yes. And it's the wrong thing for the wrong reason too, we know. (laughs) Sure. But but he doesn't know that, and he has no way to know that because nobody really knows very few people really know the true danger that the ring poses. So in the book, he does take them to the caves where their headquarters is in these gardens that are on the border of Gondor and he basically helps he gives them sanctuary Frodo and Sam and he helps give them more supplies and sends them on their way from there 
And in the movie, he takes them hostage and takes them back to Osgiliath, which is an outpost of the uh, White City uh, that's closer to the Black Gates. And he's going to take them back to sure. the to yeah. the White City, to the capital. And that's when the Ring Wraith comes in on the flying creature. And the after Nazgul. yes, and after that attack, he realizes how close the forces of darkness just came to actually reclaiming this source of power. And he realizes that Frodo and Sam are actually correct. And so, like uh, as a fantasy character should, and as we know, does not happen in real life. He sees the potential negative outcomes of his actions and changes them to suit what is better for everyone. He doesn't double down just because his ego would be hurt by it, yeah. Exactly. And um, again, that is why this, we know this is a fantasy story. Yeah, but this is this whole interaction with when he changes his mind in Osgiliath is what I was thinking of. When I was rethinking about this new arc from the film, not new, but this arc from the films that's different from the books, and why I realized it's a more interesting one. Because he fucks up, he makes a mistake, and then he realizes he's wrong, he admits that he was wrong, and then he tries to course correct and actually do the right thing as he sees it at that point. And... He then he has this kind of true path of redemption that originates from within himself. It's it's this internal form of self worth rather than looking for external forms for to gain that. And I think that it's such an interesting arc for him in that way. I agree. I think Faramir is is one of I mean definitely one of my favorite characters in the series. Much like Boromir was. I mean, I really like Boromir too, but he is idealized in his father's mind and kind of in the film, except for the whole part where he fucks up and almost uh, attacks Frodo. And then, but you know, then he gets this very quick redemption at the hands of uh, an orc bolt. <laughs> yeah, trying to save Marion Pippin. Whereas Faramir gets kind of a different arc where he gets to play out what would have happened, you know, to, to Boromir if he had been able to have some perspective and actually survive. Right. Definitely. So it sounds like he becomes a more complex character later in the series. I think it's cool that they add complexity later on. Yeah, Faramir has more depth this way, and I think it's actually, in the end, it's better. Yeah. It's more relatable, like Jamie said, because he fucks up. You know, and he's he's just he's not a perfect hero like in legend or in these old stories. Like he actually they add those layers to him and it makes him, like I said, more relatable. Yes. Guys, before we keep talking about this, why don't we head over to the bounty board? You awaken with a cold sweat. Where is it, you wonder? I can't find it. Frantically, you search your room, your pockets, everywhere you can look to try to find it. Where could it be? You think. Did I leave it? No, wait. There, in the corner of the room, you see it. Round, golden, perfect. You pick up the ring 
and slide it onto your finger, and you hear a voice in your mind. It says, Bounties. This week, Swords and Satire is sponsored in part by Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. And if you want a suggestion for a series to start your Audible collection with, might I suggest The Iron Druid Chronicles by Kevin Hearn? All three of the satirists love these audiobooks. They're about a millennia-old druid named Atticus O'Sullivan who lives in Tempe, Arizona, and goes around solving people's problems, gardening, fighting gods and demons, and basically doing all kinds of other stuff that you would think that a modern-day druid would do. These are really entertaining fantasy books with some interesting world-building, great lore, really lovable characters, and, spoilers, eventually there's a talking dog. So why don't you go on over to Audible right now and uh, check out the Iron Druid Chronicles. That's what we suggest. But Audible isn't just a great source of audiobooks. Oh no. They have podcasts, like ours, comedy, original content, and more. There's something on Audible for everybody. It's also super convenient. You can download titles to your device so you can listen offline, which is really good for me because I'm often listening while working in the yard and my Wi-Fi sucks. And you can also listen across multiple devices without losing your place, which is also helpful for me because I have a bunch of different places I listen to Audible from. So head over to audibletrial.com slash swords right now to start your free 30-day trial. Get a credit for a free audiobook of your choice that you get to keep even if you cancel your membership. Not that you're going to want to. You'll also get an exclusive wellness guide and an email reminder before your trial ends. And after that, it's just $14.95 a month, and you get a credit for an audiobook every month. When you sign up for your free trial, you also help us keep the torches lit at Castle Satire. So once again, that's audibletrial.com slash swords. And now, back to the episode. Speaking of perfect heroes, I want to mention Gandalf, right? Yes. Good, we haven't talked about him yet, right? We, we we needed to go back to him to like really delve deeper into his character and what he symbolizes. Right. I want to start off by saying Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, right? Those good, are people. Good buddies. C.S. Lewis is the author who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia series. Yes. Not so subtle christian fan fiction right yeah good good way to describe it yeah yes and they influenced each other's writings quite a bit i feel and it is shown pretty intensely in gandalf i think in this movie right because gandalf in this film i feel was heavily inspired by christian mythology right yes he's killed Fighting essentially a fallen angel, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what the Balrogs are. Yeah. He kills the Balrog, but dies in the process. He's reincarnated as Gandalf the White. And this is where it makes a little bit of a Bible reference, right? Yes. Because when Jesus dies, they say he comes back and he hangs out with his apostles, right? 
I think it's for 40 days, and he doesn't reveal that it's him for 40 days, and they don't recognize him because they thought he died. They saw him die. And so they're like, nah, it's not him, right? But then, of course, it is. And they do a little bit of that meme in this movie when he comes back and he's like, oh, it's me, Saruman. Woo! And his friends are like, who the hell's that? Yeah. No, his friends are like, shit, we gotta fight this dude. (laughs) Yeah. And he's like, guys, it was me all along. There's a camera right there and a camera right there. You should have seen your reactions. (laughs) You will be able to when the movie comes out because we're making this into a movie. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, yeah, this, like, ascendancy after death, I think, is a very, like, very Jesus analogy sort of Christian thing. Yeah, resurrection. Yeah, that same misdirection and kind of the gold, the shining light, the beacon of hope and faith sort of thing as well. And we know Gandalf is a celestial, so. Yes. Also, earlier in the film, we saw the Prince of Rohan, right? He got exiled. Nephew of the king. I don't know. Is he, is he the a nephew? Prince? Yeah, Aomir is uh, Theoden's nephew. Yeah. The prince dies. Yeah, but he would be the oh, next in line to inherit the throne if his cousin Theodred dies, which Fair he enough. does. Well, what I was going to say was when Theoden is woken up from his possession, right? Also, he banishes uh, he banishes another evil celestial from Theoden. He performs an exorcism on him, which Jesus does multiple times in the Bible. He's like, be gone, Satan, right? Yeah. And he just kind of, he did that to Theoden, right? Boop. Yeah, he saved him. Boop him through and then force right. of demon comes out. Basically, through force of will, with the focus of his staff. It's true. Yeah, I told you to take the wizard's staff. <laughs> you wouldn't deny an old man his walking stick, would you? <laughs> yes, I would. You're a fucking wizard. Are you crazy? I could lose my job. <laughs> <laughs> Losing uh-huh. your job. in a warrior cult is death (laughs) i mean yes literally (laughs) that means that my boss will kill me my boss the king yeah makes sense but yeah i think those are not so subtle christianity references yeah yeah i mean and tolkien was a catholic and very devout and and actually i believe converted Lewis to Christianity. I think that's right. Nice. Now I want some art of Gandalf riding around on Aslan. His (laughs) Christian faith is a major source of the themes that we see in these stories that carry through to the movies. Like light overcoming darkness, having faith and trusting something, you know. Those are common themes in christianity too yeah definitely so before we move on there's one more character that we've touched on but i really want to delve a little bit deeper delve a little bit deeper into this character and that's treebeard Ah. we've touched on him a bit but there's a line from him that i absolutely love and it's i'm on nobody's side because nobody is on my side I totally get why Treebeard yeah. and the Ents are slow. <laughs> Besides the fact that it's a cultural thing for them, they're slow to act. 
They're slow to make decisions. Everything is very patient, very measured. But, you know, he has also seen what happens and why you can't trust everybody. He talks about how Saruman used to love nature and he would come and walk through the forest and they would talk and they were friends. Yeah. But Saruman doesn't care for the trees anymore. He's seen that people are fickle and change their minds and are obsessed with their own personal power. And and the machines of industry. Yeah, I mean, and they literally burn the forest to drive these machines of industry. Once Treebeard has to come face to face with this devastation, that's when he is inspired to act, though. Right. And, you know, this is a major thing in Tolkien's writing because Tolkien was an avowed nature lover. He loved the natural world, being outside. Same. <laughs> yeah, you got big Tolkien energy yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was important stuff for him. And there are these themes of environmentalism that I think people definitely know that they're in Tolkien's writing, but I don't think they get emphasized as much as I personally would think that they do because the Ents are amongst the most powerful entities on Middle-earth. They fight against Saruman. They are the reason that Saruman is, is laid low and that Isengard falls because there is a comeuppance for what Saruman does and what the Urukai, or and what the orcs do, burning down the forest, tearing it down. And there's lines that Saruman says where he's like, we're going to burn this forest down. It's going to be the fuel for our engine of destruction, basically. They see it as a commodity for extending their control and increasing the power they have over the region. Yeah. And it's something for them to use. Right. It is this idea that, that Tolkien actually fought against of, you know, humans have the right to just do whatever they want with the world. And right. I am on Tolkien's side that Me I too. don't think that that is a good stance to take and that we should be, you know, stewards of a natural world. And it, and it, it is this idea that he's fighting against and that he exemplifies in Saruman and Saruman's efforts that humans are at this top of this pyramid and everything else is beneath them. Like, they are the owners of the earth. Treebeard will remember this. And humans are a part of nature. You don't have control over it. It's an illusion that we have control over it. And we are we are reminded of that in times of natural disaster, even while there is loss of life during those times and it is a tragedy, we are also reminded of this fact that we don't have complete control over everything. And I think it kind of reinforces the idea for some people that we should be acting in balance with nature and seeking ways to not be owners, but allies. Yeah. And stewards of nature. And I think that's the sentiment that Tolkien wants people to adopt. And and that's the sentiment that Treebeard still exemplifies. And that there is the wrath of nature. That it is kind of like a natural disaster that well, comes I was, in. I was going to say, like, one of the things the Ents do to 
take down Isengard is destroying a dam and flooding. Unleashing the torrent of the river. Yeah. Like they, they flood Isengard and, you know, Isengard has like become the land of industry and fire and it's brought low by trees and water. And I think that is a beautiful symbolic end to this movie. Yes. I agree. And then you got that scene with the the flaming ant like dunking his head into the water <laughs> to put himself out that I love. That I, has stood I, out to me every time I've watched this movie. I love that meme that Jack sends us because I am so tense until I see. I know that it happens, but I'm still tense until I see him putting the fire Okay, out. but you're going to have to explain for the listeners what you're talking about. Jack can explain it. It's just this meme of me when I see every. Me, every time I see the end catch fire in the two towers, and it's just Jesse Pinkman from Breaking Bad screaming out in despair. <laughs> His face is the ultimate example of human despair and suffering just torment and his face is red and his mouth is open as wide as it will go and he's just screaming no <laughs> and <laughs> it is it's like that is it's so good it is the way i feel whenever the ent is caught on fire by the orcs i'm like no oh, i think the uh the apocalypse is gonna be when one day you watch that movie and you don't see the Treant dunk its oh, head no, in the water. No, that's gonna be the collapse of society. People oh, are gonna man. be like, no, no. Wait, do movies like change to prophesize things that are happening? Oh God, that'd be insane. A divination film that changes depending on the times. That's kind of cool. All right, guys, we've covered a lot for this movie. Why don't we move on to evil, stupid, or misunderstood? Welcome to Evil, Stupid, or Misunderstood, the part of the show where we take a look at the primary antagonists of the film and determine if they were just misunderstood, or maybe really stupid, or could they be evil? Alright guys, so there's kind of a lot of antagonists and potential antagonists throughout the Lord of the Rings. Obviously Sauron is like the big bad, but then there's like little bads and then like could be bads so who do we how do we want to do this well sauron is evil just fucking evil oh pure evil but he is this obvious kind of example for the panopticon this ever present all watching eye exactly this i see you. this constant surveillance of this dark force but it the panopticon is also the constantly being surveilled by those in power and Sauron is trying to take power and trying to basically become a dictator for the entire land of middle earth but he also is kind of like the constant surveillance you might feel i mean if you have a ring of power and you <laughs> no. always want to put it on because it's always calling to you. I mean, yeah, we all know what that's like. What I'm trying to say is if part of your reality includes depression or anxiety or 
some similar mental state, you might feel like you're constantly being surveilled and it's kind of coming from within. And the ring kind of makes Frodo feel that. Well, it does kind of create this feeling for Frodo of having to be ever vigilant, which, I mean, we know from reality, being in a constant state of heightened stress and anxiety, you know, play havoc on a human mind and body. Like, it starts to cause really damaging results, you know, to your relationships and to or to your body and just like that heightened stress is just not good for humans yes well the experience and your reaction to it over time that you're talking about this chronic stress or any major experience that profoundly affects you actually does change your genes i change my genes at least a couple (laughs) times a month it it affects your DNA and how you your body will deal with disease and it affects your genealogical line going forward because these hormones that your body gets flooded with in your whole system affects your epigenomes and these are the regulator genes that will turn on or off they have other functions but they turn on or off the primary genes of your DNA. And so in your your environment and your experiences affect your epigenomes and your DNA and genetic lineage going forward. And so it does have a profound effect, not only on your own life, but on the lives of everybody who comes after you <laughs> so this is a really long way of saying that sauron is super fucking evil right <laughs> yeah. and the ring kind of has a mind of its own and it's i, I think the mind of the ring is the mind of sauron it does have its own will apart from him though. i guess that's true but it's i don't know if you could say if the ring is evil because it acts more out of instinct it's more like an animal in that way, I suppose. Or like a disease. Yes. It's always trying to infect anybody around it, and it wants to be caught like a contagion. Yes. I kept thinking of it like the Venom symbiote from the Marvel series. Yeah, you want to talk about that? I mean, the Venom symbiote is more of an instinct, uh, unless you watched the Venom movie where it has a personality. <laughs> But it it just kind of comes with its own set of instincts and impulses and a, a bundle of feelings, right? So the people it attaches to act differently, more aggressive, kind of more impulsively and that sort of thing. But it gives them, you know, superhuman abilities. And the ring does all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. And the symbiote is alive. It's a, you know, a symbiotic ooze and uh but the ring it you know it's it it needs others it's attracted to people right it, it's just lonely it wants company wear it, it. wear company. it wear it put it on mm-hmm. it's infused with the, its own power source it's mm-hmm. like a nuclear reactor and it's a, a source of corruption for those who wield it because the person who created it was corrupt that also ties back that we uh, we all live in a spider verse. Oh, that's a good point. 
Yeah. I often forget that we're in a Spider-Verse. <laughs> Especially in Return of the King. Then we really live in a Spider-Verse. In these stories... Because of the big spider. <laughs> right, right. Oh, she yeah, loves. right. She loves. You're right. But in these stories, it's kind of a measure of a character's metal if they can withstand this corrupting force of the ring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could be a Boromir and let it like drive you towards greedy and selfish acts or you could be a real tom bombadil and just not even give a fuck but he's not in the movies so i guess the ring is evil it's kind of inherently evil it's like passively evil (laughs) i suppose it kind of plays the role of the tempter right? right well obviously obviously but that's another biblical reference right because the devil's main the devil's main job on a cosmological scale is to tempt people and try to kind of corrupt them. test their faith yeah yeah and things like that that's a rough job to have man yeah lucifer might beg to differ with that but you know from yeah. the from the show lucifer yes yeah, yes. but he 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 doesn't really like revel in his devil devilry that's he does not point. revel in his devilry that's my point that the ring serves as the tempter, kind of like an avatar of Sauron where he isn't, or just like another extension of his will, kind of like you were saying. Yeah. It was just another way of interpreting it. Yeah, that's fair. It's like if Satan had the Venom symbiote from Marv. Oh, God. That would be terrible. Um. So the ring is evil, but maybe a little misunderstood. It's just doing its job. Oh, God. Well, it is. I'm just kidding. It's a tool. I'm just kidding, so everybody knows. And Saruman is an ally to Sauron out of cowardice and fear. He gave in to fear and despair. But he also wants power. But he wants to join with Sauron so that he isn't just annihilated and killed. He thinks it's the only way to survive. Yeah, but I mean, we must join with him. We must join with Sauron. (laughs) Which is what we learned from the first movie. I don't know if this is intentional. I can't remember this moment from the book, but in the movie, when the Ents are destroying Isengard and laying it low, the way Christopher Lee portrays it, it almost looks... Like he's excited that something is stopping him and fighting back against him because a part of him wasn't completely evil and a part of him didn't want to be doing what he was doing, but he didn't know how to stop. There's just this look on his face. He, he, his eyebrows are raised. He's almost smiling. He look, he's breathing fast. He's looking around excitedly as they're destroying everything. You know, he's I was, built. I, I was gonna say that we'll see if that carries into the next movie, but then I remembered that Saruman was cut from the theatrical release of The Return of the King. But we've seen the extended cut, so we can talk about the scene. I I just get this impression like he's almost relieved that somebody stepped in to stop him because he couldn't do it himself. He was too afraid to do the right thing. He's just excited. He's like, is that my old pal Treebeard? What the fuck is he doing? 
I'm just saying, if this isn't Star Wars, then why is Count Dooku working for the shadow entity of darkness? <laughs> oh, man. I don't, I'm, I'm just, I don't understand. <laughs> I mean, I, he's always going to be Lord Samurai to me. Hmm, hmm. So, Saruman is evil, but he's also a little stupid, I think. I mean, he could have led the Council of Wizards against Sauron, but I I think he wanted the power. I think he kind of fell to greed and avarice. And that's stupid. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he has that signature air of superiority. That probably made him feel like he couldn't turn to anyone for help, and part of why he lost all hope, because we were saying that hope comes from community in right. this series. yeah. And so if you're a loner, you, you only have yourself to rely on. And that's another thing, that's another Christian ideal reflected in this. Uh, having faith in something other than yourself. Right. The other interesting antagonist for me is Grima Wormtongue, because he's like this really evil piece of shit when we first meet him. <laughs> and, like, we build him up to be just loathsome and terrible. But then when he sees the level of destruction that Saruman is planning for Rohan, he cries. Yeah. He's like, oh, fuck, what have I thrown my hat he in He looks with? horrified and he starts weeping. Yeah. And then in the deleted scene that I guess we're going to talk about in, from the next movie, he fucking stabs Saruman in the back. Wait, is Saruman's death scene only in the extended version? Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah, it's a big moment. I'm surprised they cut it. I mean, that movie is approximately 47,000 hours long. Maybe they could have like gotten rid of one of their 50 million endings and kept the <laughs> the death of one of the major villains in there <laughs> yeah i mean sure yeah. what we're saying is there was something that could have been trimmed but yeah. yes it should not have been christopher lee no that is anyway a, that is a crime right what is this guy's name again grima Wormtongue. yeah grima yeah right off the bat absolutely right we see that he's wet we see that he's <laughs> sticky we see that he smells bad he doesn't have eyebrows. The stink lines are just coming off of him. Uh, yes, it's true. He leaves a snail trail wherever he goes. <laughs> <laughs> he is moist and pasty. Oh, God. Mm. It is so gross to look you at You can him. taste him when you're in the same room. Oh, come on. It's true. <laughs> I love that actor on Deadwood and in Bone Tomahawk, though. Yeah, yeah, he's mm -hmm. a great, he's a great actor. But the the character, ugh. yeah, I'm gonna have to say probably evil, just because his ambition led him to backstabbing a lot of people. Literally, I really yeah. want to just call it like it is and say that he really reminds me of an incel. I'll just say it. Heck yeah. I mean, the way he treats Eowyn, sure, yeah. Yeah. Now I really want to draw him with the Joker makeup on. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I, I think, in spite of what Chelsea just said, which is going to make me, like, maybe retract this, I was going to say a bit misunderstood because of the tear, but now I don't want to say mean, that. I mean, maybe, but, I mean, I think he... He's he... just, like, sad to have to deal with the consequences of his actions he is of the rohirrim that is his homeland and he sees the devastation that he's about to 
unleash or that he helped unleash with the intelligence that he was feeding Saruman. And he is regretful in that moment. I think that shows that he's capable of being redeemed, but he never gets the chance. And that is sad. So maybe he is a little misunderstood. Just a touch. Just a tad. I think it really says something that we accept that he is basically an incel, but because he's a fictional character, we're like, oh, he's misunderstood. I feel for the guy. <laughs> but if you met a real incel, you'd be like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Go die. No. Um, but if you saw a documentary about him, uh, then he's on a screen. Oh, I feel bad for that. <laughs> Society. The, we live in one. It's the fantasy context. Yes. It helps. We live in a Spider-Verse. <laughs> Truly. I so want a fan edit of someone holding the Ring of Power and it suddenly gets flung out of their hand and you see Miles Morales webbed over. <laughs> nice. So I think we have one more character we should definitely talk about and that would be Gollum, mm -hmm. who is an antagonist and also a kind of framed a bit as a potential protagonist throughout this, this movie, I would say it begins. And then in the next movie, we get a little bit of sympathy for him. Or is that just because Andy Serkis is just so gosh darn good at his job? Maybe. He's just fantastic. I mean, let's start at the beginning. Smeagol is a fucking murderer. <laughs> he kills his cousin or his best friend to take the ring. He is a lowly degenerate creature. Depraved. Seemingly no semblance of personhood or humanity left in him. I mean, I guess it depends. I, I think some people act very much like Gollum on a regular basis, who are still humans. Conniving, greedy, murderous uh, bastards who you wouldn't really want to be around. I I know about some people like that. So for Gollum, I'm gonna take what I don't think is actually a controversial stance. I think he's mostly misunderstood, right? In fact, I would might go on a limb and say he isn't... I wouldn't consider him evil. What about the murder uh, thing? <laughs> well, that, was, that came with being weak-willed, I think. When I it came he, to the corruption of the ring. Yeah, yeah. Okay. He was mainly corrupted by the ring. He he is weak-willed. I think he's kind of more of a tragic character. I think well, yeah. he's probably misunderstood with a splash of stupid. Just because oh, I yeah. don't think weak-willed. I think weak-willed would be grouped with stupid. Yeah, I mean, in his case it is. Yeah, I mean, I think in the case of Gollum, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As Smeagol. Smeagol... I mean, we don't get to see this yet, but having seen Return of the King and getting to see his backstory, I think we know that's the case. Yeah. He, he's a little stupid. But he seemed like he was a sweet guy who had friends before this corrupting influence of the ring got a hold of him. I mean, mm -hmm. man, the ring really got him fast because Bilbo had it for a long time and, and didn't have the same like, very sudden, murderous rage. And Frodo withstands it even better out of the three of them. I mean, Bilbo has it for longer, but Frodo, I guess, has it, like, during the darkest period where 
Sauron is most active in trying to reclaim it and has reclaimed his form and power. And so he's actively exerting his will to try to get it. And that's putting pressure on Frodo. And he's got the added pressure of the ring, too, trying to get back to its master and putting pressure on him. And he's withstanding all of that. So Frodo's a fucking champ. Yeah. And Sam. Oh. And, I mean, Sam is a god. Yeah. Sam is an angel, so. (laughs) I was just imagining naked Sam made of light with several (laughs) wings ascending from the sky. (laughs) Of course you were. But you think about that all the time. I don't really stop, actually. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, I think, yeah, I think there is an element of evil in Gollum because he was so quick to cause tremendous bodily harm to people and continues this kind of path of of murder and duplicitousness. Well, after hundreds of years of the corrupting influence of the ring, he's over 500 years old, at least. Sure, sure. But, I mean, he also straight up murders somebody the minute he gets the ring. So, I'm not going to absolve him of being evil. Oh, yeah, 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 you're right. (laughs) (laughs) If it was like, if he had it for a long time, we could be like, oh, okay. But he gets gets the ring while Sauron is in his, like, diminished state or, like, not even reformed. And straight up murders his, again, I think, cousin or best friend to take the ring (laughs) the minute he gets it. Hey, Smeagol, look, a ring. What knife? Knife? (laughs) He calls his friend precious, too. Yeah, yeah, it's complicated. That relationship status, it's complicated. No, no, no. I think he says my love. Yeah. I, I stand by what I said. It's complicated. Maybe they were a couple. That's even sadder. Let's move on. <laughs> okay, we made Chelsea sad. Uh, I think we're done with evil, stupid, or misunderstood. Why don't we head to the smithy? <laughs> Welcome to Ye Old Smithy where we forge a rating for this movie after we each share an epic moment or feature from the film. Jack, would you like to go first by telling us your epic moment or feature and then giving us a rating from 1 to 10? Let's see, Narsil is not so much a part of this movie, so let's say stings. 1 to 10 stings. Excellent measurement of film quality, your dungeon manager. (laughs) Thank you. Allow me a moment to ponder. Hmm, I feel like that would be taking someone else's epic moment. Hey, I caught on you first. You get to set the tone. If uh, somebody else picked it, they can get fucked and have to pick something else. I have pondered long enough and have come (laughs) to a conclusion. My epic scene and or feature was a scene that we've already mentioned. We've already talked about it. We all love it. It's the scene where Frodo is like, shit's fucked, Sam. The world (laughs) is bad. And Sam's like, no, Mr. Frodo. No, it's good. (laughs) And then it's the line where he says, it's the one we keep referencing where he says, "Uh, you have to believe that there's some good in the world worth fighting for, right? 
And just Sam is so fantastic. And later on, when he's like talking about the stories, he's like, oh, Frodo, you're going to be the most famous hero in all the stories because you're awesome, right? He's like, oh, but Sam, you absolute fool. You're <laughs> awesome. <laughs> that is a sweet moment. Sam Weiss yes. the Brave. Yes. I want to hear more about Sam. I, I've always heard that people are like, Sam doesn't get enough praise in the movies. I'm like, I think I think he got a really good amount of praise right there. But I mean, he is just such a fantastic character. Amazing friend. You don't see a lot of male relationships like they have. Yeah. Although Lord of the Rings has a surprisingly good representation of healthy male friendships. Absolutely. Yes. So... I guess that's a really cool feature. Healthy male friendships. <laughs> or I just like healthy that. friendship in general. You know? I like how you talked yourself into that one. It's true. I went from insane, slightly Smeagol-esque voice to just being like, you know, friendship is good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If there was a motto for our podcast other than we turn low fantasy into high art, I'd say friendship is good would be it. Yeah. We are constantly talking about that. Yes. I'm going to go out and I'm going to say eight stings out of ten. I think this movie was very solid. I was gripped the whole way through. Yes. However, some of the timelines could have used... Uh, timelines. Some of the storylines that we are following could have used a bit different pacing... The Ents storming Isengard timeline or storyline was very important. I get it. And then there's Pippin and the other one. Mary. Mary. Yeah, Pippin too. <laughs> In that, you know, it's cool. They're cool talking to the Ents. But we keep cutting back to it. And it feels like we maybe only needed one or two scenes with them. And then Frodo and Sam feel just so completely removed from yeah from the military conflict. It feels kind of like a little too disjointed for my taste. And just some of the pacing, because we're cutting back to the stories that seem slightly less relevant, is a bit thrown off. However... The film is, like, a masterpiece regardless, so, like, 8 out of 10, you know? It's fantastic. Nice, yeah, I think yeah, that's, that's all fair. Yeah, that's fair. All right, Chelsea, how about your epic moment or feature, and then your rating from 1 to 10 stings? I'm going to go with an epic feature, and that mm. is the dialogue about hope in this movie. Mm. Mm. I I wrote down some of it, but I think that they did such a good job of preserving that from the books and really honing in on what was the most important. Hope is about friendship. Hope is about belief and trust and an inner knowing about what is important. And we get that through the dialogue, as Jack mentioned with Sam, about talking about what is worth fighting for. Mm -hmm. Arwen stresses to her father that there's still hope for this world. She sees the potential for light. And I love what Aragorn says to Theoden. Oh, sorry, it's Aomir. 
after Eomir says that hope has forsaken these lands, Aragorn says, there is always hope. Boom! And, and I he love, puts on sunglasses. Yeah, I just love how that builds in crescendo. Sam says there's something worth fighting for. Arwen says that there is still hope. And Aragorn says, no, there is always hope. Yeah, so there. <laughs> and I just think that's pretty epic. And it helped me anyway. <laughs> Aragorn so, wins the movie. Yeah. I'm going to give this movie also an 8 out of 10 stings. In terms of quality and effort and artistry, it's a 10 out of 10. But it gets an 8 out of 10 for some of the editing issues that Jack mentioned. I agree with that. Yeah, the pacing is a little quick, especially in the theatrical release. Yeah. And if they're going to make some changes for different characters, and they put Arwen more in this movie anyway, I think they could have given Arwen a, a more active role than relegated to some of these flashbacks and co side conversations with her father. I, I, I do like that they included her more, and she's basically almost not an existent in the book, but... They gave some of that prom prominence to Eowyn, but I, it would have been interesting to see how they played off of one another and maybe inspired each other. So, yeah, I think they could have done a little bit better building up Arwen. That's fair. Because they were already making the change anyway, as I mentioned. So, mm -hmm. yeah, but 8 out of 10. Nice. Gets high marks for me. How about you, Jamie? Oh, man, that's a great question. Yeah, yes, yes. What is your epic moment or feature? Tell us. Well, you know what? This one kind of was pretty easy for me because there's a moment that always sticks out in my mind. So my epic moment is the scene where Aragorn is returning to Rohan after he fell and was saved by his buddy the horse and brought back and... Like, he meets Gimli at the door, and Gimli's like, oh my god, you're alive! And Legolas is like, dude, you're here, holy shit, like, this is great. And Eowyn is, like, super excited and glad that he's back. And then there's just that scene where he is pushing through the doorway, and he's, like, putting his whole body in the opening these gigantic double doors. And he just kind of, like, emerges into... Theoden throne room and just that scene replays in my head all the time I can always picture Vigo just pushing through those doors <laughs> with this triumphant return and Theoden kind of has this moment of like oh shit maybe we do have a chance man and it ties back to like Chelsea's emphasis on the hope theme and everything it really like seems like that moment is kind of when Theoden is like all right, let's go for it. Like, we're still going to go to Helm's Deep, but we're going to put up a fight. I just want to interject real quick that there's this idea, it, IRL, uh, that humans can play angels for each other in these certain important moments, like by saying, by by being there right when you needed help or or saying the right thing at the right time. Or making an epic entrance when everybody thought, like, oh, maybe shit's fucked. But then you're like, oh, whoa, yo, check this guy out. Yeah, and so Aragorn, as the symbol of hope, he's, like, being an angel for Theoden in that moment. 
So that's my epic moment. Uh, I think an eight out of ten is a very fitting score for this movie. I, for me, the Fellowship of the Ring is my absolute favorite of this series. This movie is very strong. There's a lot of great moments. There's a lot of great scenes, but because we start following these different story threads that are so they're they're all interwoven, but they're also disparate. It is harder to follow, and the jump cuts between scenes can be really jarring, especially, like I said, in the theatrical version. Yeah. The Fellowship, because we're following kind of one party, one adventuring party, it is a little bit easier to go from scene to scene in a more organic or in a more filmic fashion, whereas this movie jumps around a bit at times when you're like, wait, why are we suddenly here? And like, I get it after watching this for like the 10th time or whatever. But I do think that the movie suffers a bit for that. But you know, the script is great. The visuals are astounding. Like Chelsea said, in terms of production, this is a 10 out of 10. The detail, the amount of passion that went into the movie, I would never give it anything less than a perfect score because they went hard for this movie. And it, they were taking a big chance. The Lord of the Rings movies were not a surefire thing when they were making them. Maybe by the time this came out, they knew that they had a hit on their hand, but they were producing these films concurrently, you know, like one to the last, like from, from the beginning to the end. Yes. So, I mean, they were taking a big swing and I commend them because of course, I mean, the three of us all love these movies. Yeah. So, yeah, I think eight out of ten across the board, totally fair. Solid. Excellent. A respectable score for a respectable series. Yes. Well, guys, I think that pretty much does it for The Two Towers. And I think this is a perfect opportunity to thank our listeners for joining us this week as we discuss this outstanding movie. Thank you to our patrons for voting on this. This was a great movie to get to watch and talk about, especially for these times. Yeah, who knew? Who knew how <laughs> relevant this would be? I did not know going into it. And if you enjoyed this episode, maybe head on over to iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast and give us a review. It will really help other people find their way to our wild little show. And if you enjoy listening to our show and you have the means, why don't you think about heading over to patreon.com slash swords and satire and joining our patron community today. Yeah, you can help us keep the torches lit here at Castle Satire. And you get tons of cool extra content, neat posts, and special shows and outtakes, all cool stuff. And if you have no extra funds, no desire to type anything on social media or leave any reviews, hopefully you have friends in real life you could tell our podcast to. Tell them about it. Share it with one of your pals and you can talk about <laughs> what you heard. If you share it with a friend and they share it with a friend, then even the armies of Morador couldn't stand against us. I love it. And if you want to follow us on social media to keep up with the movies and shows we're covering and get a couple of chuckles out of our weekly memes, then you can follow us at Swords and Satire on Instagram and Twitter. 
or join the Swords of Satire group on Facebook. And don't forget, next week will be our second mini episode ever of Satire TV. We'll, we'll be continuing with the Witcher series and we will be talking about the second episode. Ooh, I can't wait for that. Me either. I'm really looking wow. forward to it. <laughs> I quiver with anticipation. Oh, you might want to see a doctor about that. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> well then, until next time. Hail Crom! Ooh, that was slick. That was a good one. Nice. <laughs> The Riddle of Morador.